Would you take your Bibles for our Bible study this evening and jump over to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, there's an entire section here that we want to be talking about, but um, let, me, let me just give you the background and, and mention a couple things here. Um, what we're doing is with these missions trips that we take the young people, we've had opportunity to take them in a variety of places. Regeneration is one of those cultures where there's an expectation of something miraculous, something supernatural, something phenomenal. When we've taken some groups, and some of you have been over in Portugal, there's a couple of these sites where they are advocating and saying there's miracles happening. Bring your sick people here and watch God work, such as Fatima. Or there's another spot that we've not taken a group, but in missions trips that my wife and I have taken and visited, there's a place in, um, in Spain where supposedly this statue where people were working in caves and doing some working with oars, all of a sudden one day this statue came down from heaven. And it was a statue of the Madonna and that, that statue produces miracles. So if you come there and worship, you're going to see the hand of God. And many people show up there. They come by the thousands so they can experience a miracle. There are groups that talk about this. Like I said, in Arizona, there's even groups where here in the States and a lot of different churches that say if you want to have something happen in your life that's really sensational, phenomenal, where our church is going to be doing this, where you're going to see a miracle of God and you're going to see whether it be a healing or something happen. Or as the guy who preached in Hershey a few years back, he said that if you came to him, he would touch you and you'd grow new teeth. There's all kinds of these supernatural and phenomenal things. My question to you is this. Does God have to prove himself by doing something supernatural, phenomenal, a huge miracle? Is that how we know God's at work in our lives? Yes, no. Does he have to do a miracle? No. No. In fact, I think Ruth is just a very interesting book as it opens up that Ruth records, well, well, let me ask you, what miracle is there a physical miracle recorded in the book of Ruth? You're not saying anything. There's a good reason why you're not saying anything. It's not that you don't know, but the fact that there is none. There is no supernatural miracle taking place in the sense that God all of a sudden suspends gravity or suspends the normal processes. He doesn't do that. The book of Ruth doesn't, uh, doesn't record any specific physical supernatural miracle. But if we want to put it on a different plane, are there everyday happenstances where God is at work? Oh, the book of Ruth is loaded with them. The first two chapters in particular. And it's very interesting to see, and if I, if I put it in tongue-in-cheek, the title, God's Everyday Miracles where God is working, and I know that technically it's, it's you know, not the same thing as walking on water, but the hand of God providentially moving and orchestrating things. You want a book that's filled with it, it's the book of Ruth. It is an amazing situation. In fact, you see God's hand working in everyday life where it starts off in the very first chapter where God is drawing Ruth to a place of salvation. It is extremely interesting how it unfolds. If you understand the story, and, and um, let me just explain, not take the time to read through the whole first two chapters, but what it is, it's a story of a Jewish family that's backslidden. They go into the land of Moab. We talked about this a few weeks back when we started the book of the land of Moab. Clearly, you shall not move to Moab. 
They were clearly told that. They disobeyed to go there. When they're there, they're, the sons grow up, the two boys in this household of Elimelech, his two sons grow up, they marry two Moabite ladies. In the course of time, Elimelech the dad, the two boys, they die. And it's just left the three widows, the mom and her two daughter-in-laws. It's at that time that all of a sudden they hear that there's, there's good crops growing back in the land of Israel. They had left because of famine, but now they're going to end up going back. And as they're preparing to go back, the story unfolds that the woman, Naomi, whose name is Bitter, she says, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I want to go back, but I don't want you girls to go with me. They ins the one turns back, but the other, Ruth, insists, I'm going to go with you. And they end up coming back into the land, and when they come back to their home village, Bethlehem, actually Ephrata, close to Bethlehem, which is the fields where it's extremely prosperous. It's the house of bread. It is the fruitful valley, those two names together. They end up coming back, and she says, don't call me Naomi Joy anymore, but call me Mara, call me Bitter. She says, I've got nothing left in life. Her daughter-in-law's standing right there, and she's saying, I've got nothing left. She's a bitter, bitter woman. And so then what happens is the daughter-in-law says, I've got to go out and get a job. Well, in Bible days, they didn't hire out, but she was supposed to go to the fields and start gleaning along the edge of the fields in order to get food for her and her mom-in-law. And she is, she is just so, so focused on helping provide for her mom-in-law that she's working in the field. Well, the story then unfolds that this field ends up being the field of Boaz, a distant relative of the family that had left, of Elimelech, the man who led him and his wife and two boys away from Israel. And in time, the story ends up that Boaz sees Ruth, he's enamored by her, they end up becoming a couple, and by the end of the story, they get married, they have a child, mom-in-law is no longer bitter, she is excited because she's a grandparent, she can send the kid home, but she can enjoy the kid. Okay, a lot of you can relate to that. And it ends up, this is the family, the son that they have happens to be King David's gra grandpa. And that's where the story becomes so popular because it's, t it's written in the life and time of David and it's telling us exactly David's background, that there's a Gentile in the family. And then this becomes the family line where the Messiah comes through. Phenomenal story. But just go back to chapter 1 and I just want to highlight a few verses. The hand of God in everyday life, working in Ruth's life. She's a Moabite woman. She, she has false gods. Her mom-in-law says, go back to your mother and to your other gods. She doesn't do that. She follows. But she's come into contact with this Jewish family. Not a great testimony, but she's heard about Jehovah through them. And as a result, she's, she's there. She's in a tragic situation. She faces death. Her father-in-law, her husband, her brother-in-law, they all die. Her heart is being drawn to a saving knowledge of, of Jehovah God. And she comes to a point where, where her mother-in-law says, go home, look at verse 6 and 7. Go home, go back to your mom, go back to your gods. She responds by saying this. She says, I don't want to go back. And in the verse 18 highlights, she says, when Naomi saw that she was, would not be entreated to do otherwise, she yielded. 
But the passage is just phenomenal where you read this phrase where it says, entreat me not to leave or to return from following in verse 16. For whither you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will, go, will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And what? Your God shall be my God. This is her point of where we understand she is a follower of Jehovah. She is a believer of Jehovah. How did God do this? How did God bring her to the point that in chapter 2 when Boaz comes and says, who's this woman? And then he has conversation. He says, I hear. I have heard about you. I have heard. Look at chapter 2 at the end of verse 12. That you have put yourselves under the wings of God Almighty. How, do, how does this happen, that this false pagan worshiper comes to a place of wanting to follow Jehovah God? It's the hand of God moving to bringing her to a point of salvation. You know, you and I have to answer this question. Does God want all people to be believers? Yes or no? How do you know that? The Bible says, I know, which passage? The Lord is not willing that any should perish. Okay, so think this through. Does God draw people to himself? Yes, what did Jesus say? And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw. How many people does he want to bring to salvation? All people. How does God do that? How does God do that? If you look at this text, God uses other people at moments. He used Elimelech and his family, not great witnesses, but what exposure they made. God used that. God used that in the heart of, of Ruth to at least get an inkling. Do you remember how Philippians 1 portrays this? Philippians 1, Paul says, I am thankful. There are some who are opposing me. They are giving me heartache. But what he says in chapter 1 of Philippians, he said, whether they be for me or against me, at least I am glad that the gospel is being presented. And I am thankful for that. How did God bring Ruth to a place of salvation? He used her trials and tragedies. He used even the death of a loved one to get her to be serious about spiritual things. We know this is true. God in chapter, uh, John chapter 9, he used the man born blind. Remember who did sin? This man or his parents? Jesus' response, nobody sinned. This is for the glory of God. John 11, do you remember what happens? What account? A, a tragedy from people's perspective. Who died in John chapter 11? Lazarus. How did Mary and Martha respond? Oh Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Oh Lord, do something about it. But by the end of the chapter, it says that many believed because of how the Lord worked. Does God ever use death to bring people to salvation? Yes. Did God intend death? No. That was never God's plan. And yet can God use circumstances that are adverse? Can he use, even where Paul says, he is in prison at this moment. And he says this, this, being in prison has fallen out onto me for the furtherance of what? The gospel. So does God ever work in an everyday way through difficult moments? Absolutely. Do you want to see the hand of God in this one? There's poverty happening. And God is using this poverty to just all of a sudden make hearts even more tender. To have to trust in the Lord. Because there's no family member for Ruth to trust in. But chapter 2 verse 12, she has put herself under the wings of the Almighty. Why? Because of her difficult moments. Does God ever do that in our lives? Does God ever put us in difficult moments where we have to learn to really trust? We did the funeral service on yesterday. Yesterday morning. 
And the testimony that the family was talking about Shirley was very interesting. They said when Shirley found out that she just had weeks left, she was telling her family members, I am learning through my suffering and through the pain to just trust the Lord even more. And she says it's been a real battle dealing with pain, but God has used it in my life in these last few weeks to just end. So on the day that she is passing and not feeling well, she turns to her son and says, son, how are you doing? I'm really concerned about you. What a, what a good attitude, like Christ on the cross, taking and being concerned. There it is, God using a difficulty, a trial, to bring her to that point. God in providence, in an everyday miracle, provided for the needs of the believers. These two widow ladies coming back, they don't have anything. But if you look through the story, which I want to invite you to do for a second, according to chapter 1, verse 6, what did God start providing once again? You go to chapter 1, verse 6. What did they hear about? Where? Back home. home. It says in chapter 1, verse 6, that they heard that there is now food back in Israel at this very moment. When you are destitute, there's a place to get the food. Then we jump into chapter 1 a little bit further. How does it read in chapter 1, verse 22? There's a phrase that it, that, that's interesting. It says that, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabites, the mother-in-law, with her, and they returned out of the country of Moab, and they come to Bethlehem when? When does all the circumstances come together that they come back to Bethlehem? What's your Bible read? At the harvest season. It just so happens they come back at the, not just the barley harvest, but they come back at the beginning of it. Okay? And then you go a little bit further in the story, and it says in chapter 2, it says that in verse 3, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and it just so happened she came to whose field? Boaz's field. It just so happened. It just fell out for her. That, that. What about this? How long is she gleaning in the fields? Chapter 2 at the very end. What does it say? Does it give you any indication of how long she's there? To the end of the harvest. We're talking six, seven weeks. That God brought her at the beginning... God puts her into this one field, and there she is. And then we ask this question. What is the reaction of the people that she's working with? Now remember, you're the people. You, this, this is your land. All of a sudden, this stranger who's a Moabite person comes back. What has been happening to your crops over the last few years? You had a famine, but also you're living in the days of judges. What keeps on happening every, every so many months? All of a sudden, there's invaders. If that's the case, what would most people start becoming when it comes to their property, their farm goods? Could they become selfish? Could they become very protective? She comes to a field where what happens, they let her glean. They let her do this. Even in the time where it's difficult, and it's commanded they're supposed to do it, but not everybody is following the Word of God. According to the book of Judges, every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And they've become a very selfish and a very self-centered society. But she so happens to come to Boaz's field at the time of the beginning of the harvest. They just so happen to get there where the people are going to be more charitable. And then what happens is the owner comes by and he sits down and he says to his manager of the field, make sure you drop extra for this woman. 
to make sure that she's got enough. And then it talks about, we, we mentioned this a couple of weeks back, that she's got the 30, the, the, the great amount of, that's, that's 30 pounds worth of the grain that would supply them. It is just interesting that God worked in all these daily details to just bring them to the point that their needs were met. Now that's exactly what he promised. My God shall supply all your need. We read even in the Old Testament that we are to fear the Lord our God who gives the rain, the former and the latter rain, that he is the one who reserves the appointed weeks, that Jesus said, I will take care of the birds of the field. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. So it all comes back to this whole idea that God is providing. That doesn't mean we don't have to work. That doesn't mean we don't have to put effort into it. It doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing like the, the, some of the folk in Thessalonica that they heard about the Lord coming back, so let's not work anymore. No, 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 no. We have a responsibility to work, but who gave us the ability to work? Who gives us the job? Who puts us in those circumstances for the job just at the right moment? It's God. It's God who is working. By the way, it doesn't mean that we don't have to at times to be charitable to others to help them during their tough moments. We know that God is orchestrating that sometimes we are the Boazes, that God gives us extra so we can minister. But why did he give us extra at that moment? To be able to help some people out. So you have God working and bringing somebody to salvation. You have God working and providing needs. And then you have God working in such a way that Ruth and Boaz, they get together, that they connect. The story unfolds, and it's interesting. It says that she goes to the field. We've already highlighted that. She goes to Boaz's field. But also, on the very day that she's there, Boaz shows up at that particular field. It just so happened that he shows up. Do you really think that? Do you really think it just so happened? Or do you think God is manipulating, maneuvering, and orchestrating? I think the latter. I think the latter that God, who it just, it just so happens that she's in a field of a relative who this relative is going to be able to meet their need. And we know the end of the story. He is able to become her what? What's the Old Testament term? Kinsman redeemer. Now think this through. They, you know, we know the end that they're going to end up getting married, but he is wealthy enough to be able to take care of them. How, how come he had all that wealth? Because God knew. God set this up. How is it that he is able to provide for them? God is setting this up. How is it that, that this guy, and here's a thought that, that just strikes me. He says in this chapter, he calls her my daughter in chapter 3. The indication is that he is, the assumption, he is probably a little bit older. Now think this through. When, if he's a little bit older, he's rich, he's extremely gracious. Because remember in chapter 2, he comes to the fields and he says, the Lord be with you, the Lord be with you. He's got a charitable spirit. Leave more fruit for that girl, uh, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. This guy... You know, if we were to use modern, modern terms, he's a pretty good catch. He would be a pretty good, you know, he would, people would be interested. How is it that he stayed single as long as he did? So that he would be available, and so the timing and the orchestrating. Does God work that way in lives? I think he does. I think it's very clear that God, God can put people together in fact, the Bible says, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. That God is 
in charge of helping to bring people together. So is it all just a coincidence? Or is God orchestrating so that certain things come out a certain way? I think the latter. I think that God works in such a way because he knows where he wants to take this, da- this line of David, where he wants to introduce this Gentile believer, where he wants the world to understand that the gospel is open. It's not just limited to the Jews. So that the Jews and generations coming down the road, they aren't saying that we are the only people, that God put Jew- or Gentile people into the lineage of Messiah just to demonstrate to the Jewish people that the gospel is open to all. And so you have this story that we, if we look and say, does God work in our everyday contacts? Does God, is God able to do that, to bring people into our lives at the very right moment? The answer from the Word of God is yes. Does God work in such a way that he directs people together for marriages? I think so. I'm convinced that was the case for Deb and I. Not by any phenomenal circumstances, not by any dreams where God spoke to me and said, Mary Carlson. I didn't have that. But did God work in orchestrate events? I think so. I'm convinced of that. Does God ever put families together where God gave you certain temperaments of kids in your home because you were going to be able to deal with them best? Or as well, God says, hey, these are the right parents for you. And maybe it didn't go real well. And maybe there was some weaknesses in their parenting. But can God use that in your life? Yes. Does God ever ever orchestrate the local church bringing people together into the body of Christ? He has to. 1 Corinthians 12, that he places some in the body with different gifts and different talents that we're becoming like a physical body. Some of us are toes and fingers. Some of us are our mouths. Some of us are the ears. God orchestrates the development of a church. Does God ever do that with ministry teams? Did God orchestrate what happened even this past week that they get there and all of a sudden the plans have to change? Did that catch God off guard? No, no. But how do we respond when things change? Do we get flustered? Do we get disappointed? And yet at the same time, if we believe that our God is powerful enough that he might move things in such a way. Did God make a mistake this week by letting a group of the teens come down with COVID? Was it disappointing? Yes. Was it you know, disconcerting at times to say, yes, they've been exposed. Now what do they do? Do they have to change ministry? But I don't think that meant that God made a mistake. I don't think that that meant that that wasn't a profitable time. Can God use those circumstances in an everyday way to work in our hearts and lives, to make us more like Jesus Christ? You answer that. Yes. Yes. So what, what do we have to do? When we look at the book of Ruth and we see how God works relationships, how God works provisions, how God draws people to salvation, what do we do with it? How do we respond? What is our reaction at the very end? Well, let's do one verse. Just one single verse. What is it? Do you know how it goes? Trust in the Lord with... Keep going. Okay, lean not unto your own understanding, but in all thy ways... And what's he going to do? Okay, we quote that. We say it. But do we believe it? Do we really believe we trust in the Lord that God can work through our trials? 
Do we trust in the Lord that we really believe that God can bring out good through the difficulties? Oh, the passage. That, that we all know and quote is partially correct. All things work together for good and the love of the Lord who are called according to his purpose. But it's a one thing to think it up here. It's another one to trust him. It, do we trust the Lord to provide what we need? Well, most of us will say, yes, I do. Well, then how do we react when all of a sudden we're stretched financially? Are we still trusting? Are we trusting that, that God is going to provide when we need it? That God is going to provide it at, enough for us that sometimes we should be willing to give it up to help other people. We should let them glean in our field to have that advantage. What about trusting the Lord? In such a way where he says in chapter 6 of Timothy in verses 17, 18, I think, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Follow how this unfolds. Nor is trust in riches but in the living God. He's speaking to us because by world standard we're rich. But he goes on, he says, who gives us richly all things to enjoy that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to share with others. Do we trust in God enough that we will let go at times? Especially when the economy looks so unsettled and all of a sudden we go, hey, wait a minute, this might be difficult down the road. Do, do we trust the Lord enough to guide in the major, the minor, to use uncomfortable situations, to put us in places that all of a sudden he places us in that we probably wouldn't have picked? I don't think Ruth would have picked the situation where I'm going to get in this relationship and my husband's going to die. But God used it. God worked in, and used that trial in such a tremendous time. Where, when it comes to living in a certain period of time, this is me. I want the rapture to happen yesterday. And I, in my mind, can't understand why the Lord is waiting. Right? But do we trust the Lord that the Lord is going to be engaging in our lives no matter what happens politically, no matter what the challenge is? Are we trusting in the Lord that we understand that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord? Do we really believe that God is absolutely sovereignly in control of even what happens in national events? That he's not caught off guard? That God can use evil to bring about some good? That God is working his plan? Or do we think that God is out of control because Washington, D.C. is out of control? Do we trust God in the sense that what we say, hey, okay, when it comes to relationships, do we trust the Lord enough that God brings, we believe God brings people into our lives at the right moment for us to minister to them or for us to learn from them? Do we trust enough that, that God might bring someone special into your life in the sense that, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for God's timing in this relationship and I'm not going to panic because I've reached the ripe old age of 21 and I'm still not married. I need to trust the Lord. I need to trust the Lord in this sense that where God puts me here in a local church, that this is a benefit for me. You know, trust in the Lord with all thy heart, lean not unto thine own understanding in all thy ways. If we look at this text and believe that there is a providential moving of God in their life and they're trusting the Lord, then we should respond with this. Not only should we trust, 
but we should have the same spirit that Ruth seems to portray, that Boaz portrays, and what Naomi gets over and gets back to, a spirit of thankfulness. Let me remind you as I close, okay, that as we trust and thank, like Daniel we mentioned this morning, that Daniel was trusting but he was thankful. Let me remind you in 1621 when they proclaimed the first, the first Thanksgiving of some of the details of how this happened. They weren't supposed to be up at Plymouth Rock. When the settlers came from the, in 1619, they traveled 66 days in those ships, tight quarters. When they got here, they were blown off course, if you remember the true story. They were headed down towards the Virginias. They ended up in Massachusetts. When they ended up there, that all of a sudden what happens is they're there and they land at a place that the, the area is vacant. It's unsettled at that moment. The Indians who had been there for the period of time, in the last couple of years, they had suffered some type of a plague and a lot of that region was now uninhabited. And so what happens is they settle there, but then they get extremely sick themselves. And over the next period of months, half of them pass away. There's only a handful that are able to keep the others going. But then as they're caring for them, all of a sudden an Indian shows up. An Indian who had been captured by the English a few years before this who had just this same past year landed in Virginia and he made his way back to this region, which was his home region. His name is Squanto. You ever hear of him? He had ended up right back in his home area looking for his tribe that had been wiped out by the plague. He had been in England. He knew English. He all of a sudden shows up and he doesn't have any conflict with the English, so he helps them out. He persuades the other tribes nearby to come and to give them some assistance. And together he helps them to get back on their feet so that they can provide the foods, the crops, and everything that they need. And so what happens is they come to this conclusion that, hey, this was providential of God to put us at this spot during this trial, somebody who happened to speak our tongue, comes back, he helps us, he persuades the other tribes to help us as well. So they proclaim the first Thanksgiving. It's not easy, but they're trusting the Lord and saying, we're going to give thanks. That's the way we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be individuals that trust and give thanks, even for difficult moments. So Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. I, help that you would, I pray that you would help us day by day this week to trust, to look for your hand, the everyday miracles of how you move in trips, in work, in people in our lives, in events that we go through, whether it even be something so tragic as death or illness. Help us. Help us, Father, to rely upon you more and more and more in each event in each difficult moment, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.